0: Coming to you from a cozy little condo, high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome Welcome to the Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts.
1: All right. How are you? Thank you for listening. We appreciate that. Whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Got a lot to get to today. Speaking of however you listen to the show, uh, there are some changes that are going to happen to this show as it pertains to when the show airs on the America One Radio app and on com, And I'll dive into that a little bit. Not sure I can give specifics just yet, but suffice to say, there'll there'll be some changes. And if you listen routinely, weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m., no problem. It'll still air weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. However, there's going to be a version that will air earlier on the America One Radio calendar uh, weekdays. So um, anyway, we'll dive into that in just a little bit. We have a lot to dive into other than that as well. Uh, There's now going to be, uh, apparently, a Senate committee to investigate Fannie Willis. And uh, there were some sparks that flew and some rhetoric that was spun as well. We'll give you some of that uh, audio. Uh, The Trump defamation trial. This is the trial where the jury is to determine how much money former President Donald J. Trump is to pay E. Jean Carroll. For subsequent defamation after the sexual assault trial, in which he was found by a jury to have been guilty uh, of sexual uh, assault on Eugene Carroll many years ago. Uh, a circus there, of course. Ho hum. There's also news of a new football coach here in Atlanta. And believe it or not, I can bring that higher to the political realm as well. There's been a lot of noise made about DEI hires, wokeism, corporate woke wokism, quotas, et cetera, and so on, and I, I see a lot of the same reaction to the hiring of a head football coach by the Atlanta Falcons that you might see if, say, for example, Charlie Kirk were getting on a flight and saw that his pilot were black, and, and I'm not making that up. He literally verbalized that early this week. I can't wait to give you that shocking audio and then show you how that pivots into this conversation about the hiring of a football coach in Atlanta, Georgia. Believe it or not, there's some relevance. First, I'm going to start with the passage of a bill to define anti-Semitism in the Georgia General Assembly. Both the Georgia House and State Senate passed legislation to define anti-Semitism as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Tia Mitchell, Patricia Murphy, and Adam Van Brimmer reports, in an effort to combat hate crimes against Jews. I mean, nobody should be against that. Nobody of sound mind, rational reason, would be against that. As uh, the Politics Georgia AM blog this morning continues from that uh, quadrette of writers, but don't let the overwhelming bipartisan margin fool you. It was a tough vote for many Democrats. Senator Sally Harrell, for example, a past guest of this show, and by the way, did reach out to her to ask her if she'd like to elaborate more on her vote, is a prime example, the Politics Georgia writers write. The Democrat represents a suburban Atlanta district with a significant Jewish population, yet she surprised many when she criticized the measure and then abstained from voting. The writing continues her argument. She said if lawmakers were to define anti-Semitism, then other groups that experience hatred should also get added legal protections. You know what? She's not wrong. She's absolutely not wrong. You're hearing that from the voice of someone who I hope you listen to often, whether it be on this audio channel or podcast, who happens to know a little bit about hate speech and being on the receiving end of it. I am, after all. A 49-year-old gay male (laughs) in Georgia, lifelong Southerner. I know a thing or two about hate speech. Senator Sally Harrell said in an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Islamophobia should also be addressed. And she's not wrong there either. The quote, I think if we had both at the same time, both groups would have felt heard and it would have decreased the amount of hate. Here's what I don't get. This column that the AJC put out this morning continues. Furious Jewish groups openly talked about a potential primary challenge to the third-term lawmaker, Senator Sally Harrell, who was elected in 2018 amid a wave of Democratic gains in the suburbs. Why? She's not saying that she's against some sort of codification of a measure defining anti Semitism. She's asking, why are we only focusing on anti Semitism when we are devising definitions for hate speech? Let me pivot to the House, where the one and only Palestinian American serving in the state legislature, released a statement. That would be Representative Roman, who, by the way, we will have on the show Monday. Looking forward to that. I adore her. She's such a sweet lady. Her statement reads, the rise of anti-Semitism is a very real threat to the Jewish community in Georgia and across the country. It's so important that we do everything we can to protect Jewish Georgians from hate and violence. The reality is, I am all too familiar with death threats and harassment because of one's ethnicity and faith. However, HB 30 simply does not address the current threats to the Jewish community. Not only does this bill not help, but it is also harmful. Although the House passed a better bill last year, the Senate restored the harmful language. I am dismayed this important endeavor has been hijacked this way. Representative Roman, Senator Harrell, not the only no votes. Back to the AJC, one of the five no votes was uh, State Representative Becky Evans, who was drawn into the same Atlanta-based district as State Representative Syra Draper. A yes on the issue. They, right, expect the rift to factor into their primary battle this year. Another surprising no vote, the AJC writes, came from State Senator Ed Setzler, an Ackworth Republican, who long argued the legislation was, quote, fatally flawed because it contained a definition of anti-Semitism, he said was too broad. On Thursday, he voted yes on the measure. Again, this legislation received broad bipartisan support. There were just a lot of questions, mostly on the left, but some on the right, about the language, the timing, the, ironically, lack of inclusivity. You heard some concerns from a Republican representative in the legislature uh, about the definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, the ACLU of Georgia uh, has stood in opposition of HB 30 as they write on their website because restricting critical statements about a government chills protected First Amendment speech. And yeah, I do wonder about the First Amendment. I, I, f- I feel as if we don't protect the First Amendment. In fact, I'm not feeling it. I see it. We don't protect the First Amendment as stridently and furtively as many on the right protect the Second Amendment. That being said, when you look at the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, is that is their 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 definition is the guidance, the IHRA definition being the guidance for this legislation, I don't see a whole lot that concerns me. It sticks mostly to defining what anti-Semitism is, a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews, rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community, institution, and religious facilities. And they even give guidance, and examples that serve as illustrations. And for those that are concerned about being uh, critical of Israel, well, actually, in the first paragraph of their illustrations, they speak to that. Manifestations might include the targeting of the state of Israel, conceived as a Jewish collectivity. However, pay attention here, criticism of Israel, similar to that leveled against any other country, cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. I'm going to read that to you again. However, criticism of Israel, similar to that, leveled against any other country, cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. As long as we agree on that, I myself could get behind HB 30. I, I think HB 30 is exclusionary. It doesn't address as... Senator Harold pointed out it doesn't address Islamophobia. There's no rush to address Islamophobia from anywhere near a similarly sized bipartisan batch of legislators. Nor is there a lot of energy towards addressing homophobia. Anti-Asian sentiment. Where? Where's the bill? Xenophobia. Of any kind. In fact, <laughs> let's be honest, we hear a lot of anti-Hispanic rhetoric, particularly from the right, as they try to codify law and give empty measures at the state and sometimes civic level when discussing border policy. You know what's ironic to me is again, 49-year-old gay man, I've heard this a lot from conservatives when it came to hate crime legislation or or, or denouncing hate speech towards the LGBTQ plus and codifying that into law. Does it just make you feel better? Well, I I don't I don't necessarily believe that that's the point. So much as, fine, we should protect free speech, whether it be a Make America Great Again hat or if you wish on your personal property to fly the Confederate flag. Yes, by all means, free speech, all for it. But why is the same pushback not coming from the usual sources when it comes to HB30? See, I can get behind HB 30, but I would like there to be another HB that addresses all the other insert phobias that need to be denounced as well. Let me also say, by the way, that I don't really feel like this sort of legislation is targeted at hate groups that are mostly left of center either. But I do think that the utter lack of action When it comes to similar legislation to address anti-Hispanic xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, has a lot to do with the ideological alignment of those that such legislation would target. All right, the Georgia General Assembly had more work to do today. There seems to be an issue with ranked choice voting, unless it's for the military serving abroad. And there will be some more oversight, apparently, in the Senate aimed at Fonny Willis. When The Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Back to the Georgia State Senate where for a few more election denialism, red meat lobs were made. There uh, was a vote allowing the uh, new election board to oversee Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his election oversight, even though the fact (laughs) <laughs> that the bill's author is a little uncertain over its constitutionality. Anyway, that vote along 30-19 party lines for Senate Bill 358 uh, is now being sent to the House for more debate. They also voted along party lines, 31-19 to 19 party line vote, to ban ranked choice voting, uh, unless you're... Overseas and in the military. Um, Let me let Senator Elena Parent fill you in a little bit on that.
2: I view SB 355 as the latest part of the disinformation campaign about elections. And therefore, another effort to undermine faith in democratic principles and systems. Before we pass any legislation, we should ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the policy under consideration? One key question might be, Does this policy, banning ranked choice voting, support good governance? A follow on to that is, is there an actual problem to be solved by the legislation or an issue to be addressed? Here with SB 355, the answer is a clear no, because ranked choice voting, also known as instant runoff voting, isn't legal anywhere in Georgia today with one exception, the military, because that is a very practical way to allow members of the military who are serving our country all over the world to exercise their fundamental right to vote. And every Republican in this body voted for SB 202 in 2021, which provided for ranked choice voting for the military and overseas voters. So to me, that would be the end of the inquiry on this legislation because it's clear that banning something that doesn't in reality legally exist while preserving the only place in the Georgia system where there is ranked choice voting makes absolutely no sense. So now I have to ask, why have we come up with this bill? What is the agenda? It smells to me like another attempt to foster conspiracies and undermine democracy, just like the other bills today, which seem to come out of, be born of, like a geyser, the views of an election-denying base that are in service to the former president and his lies and misinformation. But for some reason, y'all keep reinforcing it with them, which creates the monster that can then gobble you up
1: well they didn't really pay attention to that warning because they continued on and passed uh, another resolution uh looking to form a senate committee investigating the district attorney in fulton county fonnie willis who has you may have heard a case against (laughs) former president donald j trump and co-conspirators in their alleged attempt to overturn the 2020 election Harold Jones, I thought, made a pretty compelling argument as to being curious as to why district attorney oversight is so important now when it wasn't all that important in the Ahmad Arbery case. Let's
3: look at a couple of issues that have been discussed, one being should we even call this particular committee, but also some of the issues been discussed as far as what creates a conflict. And it's already pretty much laid out in the law that nothing that's been discussed in the media, et cetera, even creates a conflict. Of interest or even creates a legal impropriety as such conflicts of interest in georgia we're talking about from case law etc one for prosecutor number one previous representation of a client you don't have that here prosecution of a fact witness against this client you don't have that here prosecutorial relationship with the victim you do not have that here special prosecutors who are paid on a contingency basis that's the key on a contingency basis is illegal in Georgia. In fact, paying on a salary and hourly rate is perfectly fine. In fact, you can actually go to the website which talks about special attorney generals. There are 18 special attorney generals in Georgia today that are charging $250 an hour. That is basically the going rate that is there. And then finally, when there's a question that the prosecutor's motives are to seek a conviction and not to seek justice. Case law has already talked about the fact that if you have A relationship, marital relationship, actually is permissible. Actual marital relationship is permissible, even if on the other side. Case law has already said that. Even if your husband and wife, and one's representing the defendant, one's representing the plaintiff, or one represents the state, one represents the defendant, um, it's actually been ruled that that is actually permissible. Probably not advisable, but the courts have used it to be permissible, saying that a person's professional conduct would trump any type of personal relationship. And so certainly, if you had this kind of conduct where persons are on the same side, they're both trying to seek conviction, the court would not hold that. But I did want to mention something a little bit deeper. And that is to talk about the double standard that I see. And the senator from 26 talked about a little bit. But I want to talk about one that we could have really had an opportunity to investigate. And we didn't. We did pass a good bill out of it, but we didn't investigate something, which was important. And that was when we took with the Ahmad Arbery situation. We had an opportunity to go and say, let's call a special committee, study committee to find out how district attorneys are handling cases when they're actually being recused. They recuse themselves from a case, but still interjecting themselves within a case. How does that happen? How does it happen that district attorneys are actually taking sides on a particular case, actually trying to influence the way a prosecution will actually happen, even though they've actually recused themselves from the case? In that particular case, you had a district attorney who wrote a letter to the chief of police who said, I'm getting out of the case. He tells the chief of police that he understands that there's immediate pressure on his department to issue, quote unquote, an arrest. This is an obvious way of saying, I know the heat is on you to do something on this, quote unquote, arrest. I know you really don't want to do it. And now I'm about to give you some backup not to do it. The letter goes on to say that the defendants were in hot pursuit as if they're police officers. There weren't police officers, they were individuals. But he writes hot pursuit, that is on purpose, to also give them the impotors that officers are like police officers. And the intent was to stop this criminal. There was no justification for that. Obviously Mod had not been determined to be any type of criminal. This is in his letter to the chief of police, obviously trying to dictate how this case is going to go. And of course, he did if the video never came out. Calling the victim in the case a criminal, calling the persons who are pursuing him with a shotgun in a truck, and hot pursuit is of their police officers.
1: So that is the voice of Senator Harold Jones, II, who goes into some greater detail about that. I'll give you today's Senate uh, video clip from YouTube at Ranchoatl.com While we're on the subject of race, let's talk more about race. When the Rancho returns after this on the American One Radio app, One Radio.com or wherever you podcast.
0: This is The Ron Show on America One Radio.
1: So, I've never mentioned this on this show before, but I launched and moderate a Facebook-like page called A Brave Bird Dog, D-A-W-G. Notice that that would include the Atlanta Braves. That'd be the brave. The, the bird would be usually the Atlanta Falcons, but sometimes the Atlanta Hawks, and the dog would be UGA. It was a Facebook page I launched, gosh, maybe a decade ago, maybe longer, to bring fans of all of those teams together to discuss those teams. Mostly Atlanta-centric sports fans, right? No Georgia Tech fans. Mm -mm. And I guess we've made some inroads to even bringing in Atlanta United. But for the most part, this is about uh, the Braves, the Falcons, Hawks, and University of Georgia Bulldogs. A brave bird dog. So I moderate that page after launching it, like I said, a decade or so ago. And I can't help but notice that as the Atlanta Falcons announced their new head football coach yesterday, fellow by the name of Raheem Morris, that some of the predictable along the racial faults reactions started coming in. And I'm not naive, okay? Atlanta is a city with racial fault lines. Literal fault lines. Ponce de Leon Avenue is a racial fault line. There's a reason why you can drive on Boulevard not leave the street, cross the intersection of Ponce de Leon Avenue, and no longer be on Boulevard. There were Atlanta residents who didn't want to share a street name in their address with the icky black people. Yeah, not my term, by the way. <laughs> Just saying, that is why a lot of streets in Atlanta, within city limits, have different names on one side of an intersection than the other. Do you get that more you know thing? Oh, I didn't know that. And can I also just tell you that being a Falcons fan and listening to the internal squabbling within the fan base about who the next head coach is going to be, who the next quarterback is going to be, it's exhausting. And I know you don't come here to listen to me talk sports. Good news. I'm not here to talk about sports. I'm here to talk about the perpetuation of racism in our culture. Let me play for you a clip that came out a few days ago. This is noted conservative, blowhard Charlie Kirk. He's the guy that founded Turning Point USA in 2012 and has served as its executive director ever since. He is the Trumpiest of Trumper types. Hear what he had to say. About the color of airline pilots. That's why I think this United story and the DEI story yes. hits so hard because we've all been in the back of a plane when the turbulence hits or when you're flying through a storm and you're like, I'm so glad I saw the guy with the right stuff and the square jaw get into the cockpit before we took off. And I feel better now. No, I mean, about like, that. you want to go thought crime? Like, I'm sorry. If I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he's qualified. Well, well, that's you wouldn't have done that. You about wouldn't about have. You no, wouldn't have that's done that's not. Before. That's not an immediate. No, you that's wouldn't have done not that before. That's not who I am. That's no. not what I believe. It is the reality the left has but created. I, I, I'm, that audio comes from a video that is essentially a podcast called "Thought Crime" with Charlie Kirk and Jack Posobiec. Charlie Kirk saying that that's not who he is. That he doesn't look at a black pilot and immediately think that pilot is a lesser pilot because he's black. He is more concerned about what DEI is doing, wokeism to 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 soften corners for folks to skip steps to move ahead based on their being black to the front of the line rick wilson notably of the lincoln project tweeted about this every pilot white black and otherwise is required to get the same minimum number of hours and training everyone No exceptions. Must all pass written and practical tests under the Airman Certification Standards. I've just checked the FARs, the regs for all aviation matters, and sure enough, there's nothing in Part 61 training rules about DEI. There's no DEI in the FAR, nor in Parts 91, 135, and 141. I'm happy to have a far-off with these idiots. Mine's already tabbed. That's a pilot joke he mentions, by the way, because Rick Wilson... Is a pilot. By the time a pilot is in a jet carrying passengers, he writes, they've had over 1,500 hours in the air and earned a private pilot, instrument pilot, complex and high performance rating, multi engine rating, commercial pilot, airline transport pilot. There's also a good chance they hold a certified flight instructor instrument rating as well. Then they're required to get type ratings per aircraft 737, Airbus 320, 777, etc. Which is like going to grad school to learn the systems and procedures of the aircraft. The airman certification standards are totally colorblind, tough, and fair. No one gets a shortcut. No DPE on a check ride makes DEI exceptions, Rick Wilson tweets. It's an insult to every pilot who has put in the work, and it is work to be a safe pilot. The FAA rules are, as they say, written in blood and based on ACS standards. Pilots take safety and professionalism seriously. Designated pilot examiners take it seriously. Airline check pilots even more so. It's a meritocracy, Rick Wilson tweets. You either make the grade, know and handle the aircraft, know the rules, or you don't. He punctuates that tweet thread with, Also, the ghosts of Benjamin O. Davis, Chappie James, Eugene Bullard, and Jesse Brown beg to differ. Eugene Bullard, by the way, one of the first African-American military pilots. Chappie James, reaching the rank of four-star general in the United States Armed Forces, a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force. Benjamin O. for Oliver Davis, a U.S. Air Force general commander of the World War II Tuskegee Airmen. Jesse Brown, a former U.S. Navy officer, the first African American aviator to complete the U.S. Navy's basic flight training program. That is the sort of racism that continues to exist and proliferates within the conservative movement, whether they want to believe it or not. Hell, you could even argue that oftentimes they'll elevate the few African Americans in the conservative movement in an effort to try and deflect from the very real existence (laughs) of racism within the Republican Party and conservative politics in general. Well, we can't be racist because we have a Senator Tim Scott. And I would argue that even using the existence of a Senator Tim Scott to deflect from charges that there is a racist element within your ranks is kind of racist in and of itself. If he can't figure it out, that's on him. Now, if you want to say, well, Ron, you're not a black person. You can't really yeah, say, well, okay, uh, th- that's my perception. And I would tell you the same thing if you pointed to a gay male conservative or Republican. Oh, Gosh, if only we had one of those recently. Like, I don't know, George Santos. That dude is a clown. And pointing to him as an example, well, we can't be homophobic as a political party. We have George Santos. First of all, that's homophobic. Second of all, pitiful f-ing example. So you may be scratching your head going, Ron, how did this start with a conversation about the hiring of a football coach? Okay, let me bring you back to the Atlanta situation. Okay, Atlanta is a majority minority city and metropolitan area. The Atlanta Falcons fan base, the, well, anecdotally, I would tell you that the, the the folks that show up to the games are majority minority as well. And I don't think that's any accident. It's a different kind of crowd that shows up for a Falcons game than will go to a University of Georgia football game, a Georgia Tech football game, even a Braves game. Again, no accident, right? Where's Mercedes-Benz Stadium? In the heart of downtown Atlanta where's Truist Park? the northern suburbs. when the Braves moved to the suburbs, they literally showed you a heat map of where their season ticket holders lived. it was all northern suburbs. it is what it is. it's just that that's that's where the the demography falls for 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 the fan bases. i'm not saying the Braves are racist. i'm saying that it's a given that the Atlanta Falcons have realized they've looked at the demography of their fan base and, and said, okay, so we're going to embrace that. They had a huge turnout for a game this past season where they celebrated 50 years of hip-hop with some of Atlanta's biggest rap names in the game. Ludicrous, literally zip-lining from, from the top of the dome's roof to the field. That was cool as hell. So, when the Atlanta Falcons made the historic hire yesterday, began announcing the historic hire, I should say, of its first ever blackhead football coach, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I somehow wanted to believe we'd moved past this. There were the predictable cries of DEI and quotas and pandering and placating to a demographic. (laughs) It couldn't have just been a damned football decision? Oh, well. He'd been a head coach before and failed. Okay. Yes. He had been the head football coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from 2009 to 2011. And yes, in that time span, he racked up a 17-31 and record. I would defy anyone to go look at the rosters of those three years of Tampa Bucks football and go, "Wow, what a great team! How did he not succeed?" And before you go thinking, "Well, was that was that back when 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 they had Jameis?" No,pe this was pre Jameis Winston. A fellow by the name of Josh Freeman was the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back then. This was after. Their first Super Bowl run. And long before Jameis Winston, let alone Tom Brady, was even a gleam in any Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan's eyes. So I don't care how good a chef you have, if the groceries in the pantry are awful, well, you're going to get about as well made an awful souffle as you're going to get. And I'm not absolving him of coaching decisions that he may have made back then. They may have lost some games that they could have won, and they may have won some games that they could have lost. I'm not going to take that deep of a dive into it. Well, Ron, when he was the interim coach for the Atlanta Falcons, he was only four and seven. Uh huh. And before he took over, they were 0 and four. And also, we can't sit here and hem and haw about his prior record as a head coach without acknowledging. That Brian Snitker, the World Series winning manager of the Atlanta Braves, by the way, had long been an assistant coach, an unproven head coach, or manager, they call him in baseball. And then when he did get the chance, he took over on an interim basis in the midst of a season and went 59-65. and More losses than wins. The following year, they went 72-90. and Again, more losses than wins. So his track record really wasn't all that good until six seasons ago. And oh, I, know, I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, but, but the, Braves, the Braves started putting together a better roster. Exactly. Exactly. If you're going to make excuses for why Brian Snitker wasn't a good manager the first season and a half that he guided the Atlanta Braves, and I'd argue, honestly, he probably was a good manager back then. May have been some of his best managing work. To take a roster depleted of talent as far as it could go. But if you're going to make that excuse for Brian Snitker, why are you not allowing for the possibility that the new head coach of the Atlanta Falcons may have been working with a roster that really wasn't all that good to begin with? After all, he took over in Atlanta for a guy who guided the team within seconds, one extra field goal kick, I should say, of a Super Bowl victory, who then couldn't get that team to excel again. He took over an 0-4 team. And yeah, they only went 4-7 and seven under his tutelage. But they weren't winning before he took over. Now look, I have absolutely no idea if Raheem Morris is going to work as head football coach for the Atlanta Falcons. Here's what I do know. Again, we live in a majority-minority city. The Atlanta Falcons anecdotally, seem to have a majority-minority fan base. And a fan base in general that ain't all excited about this team and hadn't been showing up to make a whole lot of noise. The home field advantage just doesn't exist for the Atlanta Falcons. In fact, if Pittsburgh or Green Bay or hell Cleveland come to town, the Saints even sometimes, are more fans rooting for the visiting team than the home team. So anything that excites the majority of the fan base and puts asses in the seats to me, is a net positive. Now, that'll be short-lived if Raheem Morris can't get this team to start winning. But I do know this. Players from across the league, current and former, those who have played for him, those who want to play for him, are all excited about the hiring of Raheem Morris. He's not Bill Belichick. No, he's not. But you know what? Bill Belichick hadn't been Belichick for the last three years. And for all that nonsense about quotas and DEI, man, what a f***ing insult that is. This guy has toiled as an assistant coach for a while now. Here in Atlanta, under the LA Rams, who, by the way, went to a couple of Super Bowls with Raheem Morris as an assistant coach. Won one of them. So that's three Super Bowls I can think of just in his last two stops. He comes as the former defensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams, but did you know he was actually also a passing game coordinator and wide receivers coach when he was here with the Atlanta Falcons, as well as being their assistant head coach. So he's worked both sides of the ball. Sounds to me like Raheem Morris might actually be qualified for the job that he interviewed for twice and beat out Bill Belichick and Mike McDonald and Ben Johnson and all the assistant coaches and coordinators that had been interviewed for before. Let me just close by saying this. Again, that page that I moderate, A Brave Bird Dog on Facebook. Please join us. You're welcome to it if you'd like. Everybody who brought up DEI and wokeism and quotas were middle-aged or older white men. Surprise? Anyone? (laughs) Me neither. One last segment. The Ron Show back after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, last segment for the week. Friday afternoon, shortly after 4.30 Eastern time, uh, we got word. And let's give it to Lester Holt from NBC News for the report here. We're coming on the air
0: with breaking news. A jury has just reached a verdict, a ruling in the federal defamation trial against former President Donald Trump that was brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll, the former president, ordered to pay $83.3 million in damages for the case. It comes months after Mr. Trump was already found liable for sexually abusing and defaming Carroll, who Trump mocked while he was president after she made a sexual assault claim against him. It also comes after Trump stormed out of the courtroom during closing arguments earlier today after Carroll's attorney told the jury that he's a liar and thinks, quote, the rules don't apply to him.
1: Which begs the question, first of all, we know he's going to appeal this. Second of all, will Donald Trump be the first presidential nominee of a major party to file for bankruptcy before an election? Uh, He went to Truth Social to say, absolutely ridiculous. I fully disagree with both verdicts and will be appealing this whole Biden-directed witch hunt. Okay. (laughs) What does a civil... Oh, God. Um, Whole Biden-directed witch hunt focused on me and the Republican Party. Our legal system is out of control and being used as a political weapon. They have taken away all First Amendment rights. This is not America. Oh, and by the way, he already owes Eugene Carroll five million dollars from the prior conviction. Magination better start snapping up some NFTs, man. <laughs> For reaction now, over on Fox News now, this is former assistant, I'm sorry, Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Boy, what a title. John Yu talking on Fox News.
0: The whole point of this, this enormous damage is unprecedented damage is now is to tell Donald Trump to shut up, right? If, if, if you can think of it this way, every time Donald Trump wants to insult Gene Carroll, he's gonna have to write a $40 million check for each sentence. Mm. That's how bad this is. Hmm. I, I can't believe his lawyers haven't succeeded in just telling him, look, campaign for president, run for president, make your accusations about a two-tiered justice system, but leave uh, this alone. Stop attacking people who are no longer public citizens. Stop attacking people you've already lost and the court has already said what you've done is liable, because every time he insults her again, he's gonna have to cut another twenty to thirty million dollar check. So with that twenty to thirty million dollar check on the temptation of him not, not to let this go unanswered, he's going to answer. He's going to say something. His lawyers are going to tell him not to. But What is the risk there if he makes no more derogatory comments and just comments on this being obscene amount of money and keeps it at that, then what? I think that's okay. He can say, look, I think I shouldn't have lost. I think i am being treated unfairly. Just he has to stop repeating the same things he said before and which he's lost again and again. And I think that's the other message behind this large verdict is not just that he should stop insulting Gene Carroll, but he has to stop disrespecting the justice system. I think that's why the judge wouldn't let him testify. He only testified for, what, three minutes a few days ago. Why he wasn't allowed to contest things is because by continuing to defy the court by saying these things, he's showing a fundamental disrespect for the justice system Mm -hmm. and for the views of his fellow citizens, the jurors. I mean, this is not a judge who's punishing him. This is a randomly selected jury of his peers.
1: Honestly, I just marvel that the rich white guy keeps howling about a two-tiered justice system when that's exactly what the actual marginalized citizens of this country have been saying for decades, but the party that he has commandeered the last eight years has willfully dismissed. Eh. Anyway, I know I'm going to sleep really good tonight. Um, Before I go, wanted to share some news with you. So... Uh, some of you know this from listening to the show. I'm a residential real estate agent, a realtor, and that is my full time job. And it requires uh, hours of me that uh, necessitate my devoting less time or different times, I should say, to this endeavor, this show, which airs weekdays, five to six p.m. on the American One Radio app and AmericanOneRadio.com before I podcast it. In the coming weeks, and I think we're going to start this on February 5th. The show is actually going to begin airing first in the morning time slot. And I believe we're aiming for 9 to 10 a.m. on American One Radio, Radio.com with a subsequent replay, I believe, in the same time slot, 5 to 6 p.m. So if you're used to listening to this show, 5 to 6 p.m., weekday, afternoons, that's fine. It's just going to be that this show will air originally in its first incarnation from 9 to 10 p.m. I believe it's 9 to 10. I think that's the uh, time slot we settled on. May change, but I think that's the time slot we're looking at starting uh, February 5th on America One Radio. Uh, why am I doing that? Well, I found that I can work better on this show overnights or early in the mornings and have it air without it interrupting the work that I need to do for my clients, buyers and sellers looking to buy and sell residential real estate throughout Metro Atlanta. And by the way, if you need help with that, feel free to hit me up, 404-919-2725. You can text me. You can uh, email me, ron at com at Ron on the Real, all the socials. But this also gives us an opportunity to have Monday mornings episodes of The Ron Show actually be more timely because they'll actually be meant for Monday mornings instead of Friday night replays. Make sense? Hopefully so. And hopefully we'll just continue to deliver the same kind of quality conversation that we have developed and harnessed for the last 15 months or so. Just thought I'd pass that on. I'll keep reminding you of that as we get closer to that date, and I think those are the hours, 9 to 10, and then 5 to 6 p.m., the replay. We are back Monday, again, originating 5 to 6 p.m. for one more week. Show notes at
3: ronshowatl.com. Until we're here again, take care.